Hello and welcome to Automotive Insights Refinish and our latest podcast episode, which is number five now in the series, brought to you by Axel Nobel. The air podcasts are focused on highlighting the very latest trends from the vehicle refinish industry, bringing you a lot of valuable knowledge and opinion from experts covering the various markets around the world and discussing a variety of topics that are currently influencing the industry. I'm once again pleased to be your host for today's episode. My name is Graham Trofall, Global Key Account Manager within Vehicle Refinish for ExxonMobil. And for this episode five, I'm really excited because we are joined by a very special guest, a legend in the industry, joining us all the way from the US, from a body shop organization who are very well known for their innovation of the repair process, for using technology and generally doing things differently which I think should always be applauded. I'm really pleased to welcome the president of DCR Systems, Michael Giorisso. Michael, could you just take a moment just to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background about, hey, how you got into this fantastic industry and a little bit about the insight into DCR. Well, thank you. I'm uh, I'm very, very honored and pleased to, to be on the podcast. So thank you, Graham. You know, I, I'm a lifer. You know, um, I've never been employed outside the industry, so it's what I know. And I uh, grew up in a family business that my grandfather started in 46, and my dad took us into collision repair in the 60s. Um, I got out of school uh, in the uh, in the early 80s, and uh, with a commitment to come into the family business, uh, I, I threatened to quit college. Uh, university about midway through and my parents said if you quit you can't come in and so that was the uh, prerequisite so got involved uh, full-time in the 80s and and uh, we were a single location and we added on to that location over the course of the next couple, couple of years and it was simply the the mindset was to grow the business because more families coming in it and uh, in 1989 we opened a second location uh, and then a third in 93, and that's when I actually took over operations of our family business. Uh, my dad's role was going to be to open new locations. And uh, then I was uh, overall general manager of our operation. And then we did a fourth store in, uh, in 97 or 98, and that was to be one of uh, four more uh, that were going to be prototypes. So it was our first ground up facility. And we had plans to put a number of uh, additional facilities around Northeast Ohio and dominate Northeast Ohio. And um, so shortly after that, when that location went up, became the first, I call it the feeding frenzy of consolidation in our industry, at least in the U.S. in the late 90s. And there were a half a dozen companies out there that were looking to roll up um, body shops, collision centers. And we were approached by, I think, just about all of them, at least four or five of them. With zero intention of uh, of exiting um, the business or selling our family company, but after several months, um, one company in particular, Sterling Auto Body Centers, convinced us that we can make a big difference to the growth of Sterling. And uh, my dad really had no exit strategy. He had put every dime he had ever made back back into the family or to the business. And so uh, as um, the next generation, my sisters were involved as well. We were, had a couple other family members in, in it as well, but we decided this was probably a good thing to do. Gave dad an exit strategy um, and um, 
that uh, we could play a big part of the growth of something new and special uh, with Sterling. So um, in 1999, we became the, I think, 27th, 8th, 9th, and 30th store of Sterling Auto Body Centers. And the first acquisition that they actually made as a market. Um, so uh, I became a regional director for Sterling, and that was basically our four stores. We added a fifth store shortly after. And then uh, a couple of years into it with uh, our CEO and board members being very lean manufacturing enthusiasts, myself and seven, seven other uh, regional directors were taught the principles of the Toyota production system in lean. Around 2000, I was asked to take the COO role over for Sterling. So I became the VP of operations uh, for Sterling Auto Body Centers. And shortly after that, we were acquired by Allstate, um, a subsidiary of Allstate uh, and uh, their holdings company. So it was the first real kind of taboo relationship with insurer owned body shops. And um, I continued to run the company over the next couple of years, uh, had a great great um, education of understanding a risk management company and how they think and and what's important to them. Uh, but at the same time, the whole being and basis of Sterling was changing. Mm. And it wasn't about changing the industry anymore. With a new way of thinking about how we repair cars, it became more of the severity focus in play. And so in late 04, I exited uh, Sterling and um, really having no idea what I wanted to do next, but knew that I was not uh, wanting to uh, repair. I mean, um, I, didn't, I was not wanting to operate traditional closing centers anymore. So with a clean sheet of paper, um, we started DCR Systems, which is basically a brand new, you know, hey, if, if, if we could do it all over again, how would we do it and how would we do it different based on the learnings? of the past several years and a lifetime of uh, experience and history in the industry. And our family business was really known um, as very customer centric. Um, so at, at any rate, um, we started DCR Systems, which was based on the, the premise that the vehicles would start to gravitate back towards the manufacturer mm -hmm. because of their complexity and through the dealer. And that um, an OE-minded uh, repair was going to become more and more on the forefront, that the, the complexity of the vehicles was going to change the way that we looked at things and the way that we actually did things. So DCR Systems was about a fundamentally different way of, of repairing uh, automobiles and taking it and breaking it down into uh, steps in sequence, um, taking the workforce and also breaking that up into different skill sets along mm -hmm. with cross-training skill sets. But moving away from a commission-based compensation so that we could really focus on the complexity um, and what that required as far as um, repairs and how technical they were becoming so that we could really isolate quality in a number of different uh, steps during the process to assure that we were putting out a consistent product and that product wasn't simply going to be the result of a commission-based technician that was repairing the vehicle based on their experience. We just felt like that could not facilitate a, a consistent, safe, and proper repair anymore. Yeah. yeah. that's. I mean, that is certainly used that term at the beginning, LIFO. 
Yeah, <laughs> and I can really relate to that. You, you've had a great journey there, and and hey, it's fantastic to see that enthusiasm still coming through. Yeah, now even today, which is amazing. Now, you know, looking at this, I mean, I mean, you you saw this, you saw the need for change, right? You saw the need to do things differently, and and you read the industry, and you could see where it was going. You mentioned their technical complexity and the need for different processes, different systems, and and becoming more customer centric. But tell me. You, you know what? What about how you? How do you move your people to this? You know, how do you get the guys on board and and get them to actually come with you on this? Because, you know, we're both in the industry a long time. We're both nearly lifers, and and we all know what the guys are like on the shop floor sometimes, and our production leaders and so on. It's it can be a difficult task, yeah, getting change. So, how how did you approach this? Well, I can tell you, Graham, in the early years of DCR, we learned a lot of different ways to do it incorrectly. So <laughs> so we learned by our own mistakes. But one thing we um, became very, very, very clear to us that if you were going to move somebody into a different thought process and to a different compensation, that you really had to take their fear of loss of compensation off the table. So it came with a very different uh, approach when it comes to that and a trust and a belief that everybody's there to do the right thing um, and that uh, we would move their compensation to a place where they were comfortable and that best reflected some of their better times uh, when they when the technicians were working on a commission base. So that was first and foremost, you had to take the, the uh, the uh, compensation off the table. But what's interesting is this is simple. It's a simple and logical process. And it's one that te- the technicians get first. They actually, they're, they're the first ones to get it, you know, and um, because they know if you want to uh, allow a repair to go through the, uh, to go through the process without interruption, you've got to do stellar preparation up front. You've got to discover everything up front. If this is yeah. a, you know, discover as we go process, it's going to be a long, drawn out, painful process. And uh, certainly that not one that serves the customer well or anybody for that matter. Uh, well, so um, it's really about the, the number one, taking the compensation off the table and then really talking through the thought process of which the technicians uh, for, have a lot to offer when it comes to how do you diagnose properly up front so that you can actually create um, essentially a kit for repair and allow you to work on the vehicle continuously until you actually put it back in the customer's hands. So Mm -hmm. simple, not easy. Yeah, yeah. Simple thought process, but not easy. Yeah, Yeah. implementation is key, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean – Look, I mean, it's it's sometimes I mean, I'm thinking now about, you know, the various body shops out there who are listening to this and and thinking about how they would approach this and so on. And, you know, it's often sometimes easy for them. I think sometimes they just, you know, it's almost like people sometimes fear change, you know, fear doing things differently and and become almost paralyzed you know and 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 i think this can happen to even you know very successful businesses you know that actually perform extremely well it could actually be even worse and more challenging for them you know to do that but what what would you say you know what was the biggest barrier to getting this this success implemented the biggest single barrier that you you felt was you know the hardest yeah, I mean, well, there's a there's a number of them, but the one biggest barrier is just the thought process to change because 
um, you know, as human beings, we're change adverse. And so we don't like sudden uh, change. And this feels like a a fundamental different way of uh, fundamentally different way of going about things. And it really is. So it's really that thought process that says, hey, you know what? We can break the status quo. You know, that that the vast majority of body shops operate in a very similar way. And it may have served the decades of the past well, but it's not going to it's not going to serve um, today and in the future uh, well at all. And certainly uh, we view it as not sustainable uh, because of that complexity. You know, back back in the day, get involved in the beginning uh, of uh, my career, uh, the industry, you know, quarter panels went on a very similar way, regardless of manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um you know, repairing panels and, you know, not worrying about substrates and things like that. It was all just, it was just so much more simple. Mm-hmm. And the experience of the body technician really what drove the success of the shop and the experience that they've had. And, and we realized that now it's, you know, things have really changed and they're changing quick. And we talk about the technology tsunami coming at us. And uh, so we had to change the mindset of 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 our people and and look at things a bit different and so that was the number one thing it's just a mindset change that says hey you know what change is okay and there are other factors in the industry that are actually driving that change so that's a good thing we need to embrace it and if we can embrace it and really think forward about how things are going to change and change the way that we do things we can be pretty successful at it yeah that's really good how 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 the how have your customers yeah responded to this you know because this is this to me is a great you, you know it's a great innovation great way forward you've got the guys on board you, you've sort of managed to change that then i suppose you've got your you know your customers however we define customer whether it's the end user or the carrier you know but typically you've got, you've got your customers out there how 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 well has it been received by the customers well you know so from a from a vehicle owner standpoint you know, they see it as very logical. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, of those customers almost view it like, well, isn't that how everybody does it? That makes sense, right? Diagnose the vehicle correctly, thoroughly, totally one time, right? Yeah. Order a complete parts order, all the parts that we need, one time. Right? One time. <laughs> Receive them all, verify them for correctness, and then start to repair the car per instructions until you complete it and put it back in my hands. So the customer looks at that like, well, that's logical. That's the way that everybody does it, correct? And it's like, mm, not really. So from their standpoint, um, not much of an impact other than enjoying the results of it. From um, from an insurer standpoint, and we don't have any direct repair program, so we're not contractually bound to any insurer, yet we want to, we want to remain insurance friendly uh, by process. And so, we, you know, we realized and through the years that I uh, was at the director level with a major insurer, under, began to understand that um, they are a risk management company. Mm-hmm. Uh, predictable and dependable events are really what make them happy. And so if we can deliver that uh, to them and we can show them that that change or the change in way we do business, the way that we do business will continue to deliver that and build more confidence and trust, then ultimately we could have a better uh, working relationship. Now, you know, that, be, that being said, it is, again, fundamentally different. So they're, you know, trying to get their arms around and their head around how we're doing business and why that makes sense. And then the end results 
especially coupled with some of the unique software that we've developed in-house, um, that we can deliver a package to them with a, um, uh, with a book of evidence that essentially becomes a permanent record for that claim. So really changing the whole game from the standpoint of, you know, how our workforce is managed through the process, how they actually participate uh, in the process, how we document, you know, how we uh, develop our strict work instructions coming from the manufacturer and really putting a really a different level of polish, if you will, on the whole process. Mm. Yeah, excellent. I mean, so you got you got the guys on board, you got the customers on board. Uh, your your partners, suppliers, you know, external partners. How how's that been sort of integrated in? Because I know I know as a supplier, you know, when you say, "Hey, we're doing things differently," uh, <laughs> we start thinking, "Okay, how how does this work?" And you know, also create some challenges sure. for for your partners. Yeah. So if you if you look back into the, the Toyota production system, yeah. um, that supply chain and the partners were a big part of the success of that. And it's no different in our world. So, you know, Ex Nobel being really our primary partner there and helping things, helping us develop things like just-in-time inventory uh, systems that really replenish at the rate of um, that that you um, you actually use. And so that you're not, you know, your shelves aren't bellowing with just huge amounts of excess inventory, just-in-case inventory. It's a just-in-time inventory. Creating work standards. And how we go about things from everything from from preparation to just simply, you know, how are we going about repairing, you know, simple panel dents uh, today and, and just creating those work stand, standards and creating them in a visual um, management style where people can really quickly reflect, read, reflect and understand really what needs to what needs to happen. So it goes on and on and on. But the partnerships are huge in not only helping uh uh, to build an understanding of what we're doing, but also the sustainability uh, of it. Because at the end of the day, we've got to be sustainable. We have to have a model that actually can work over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sustainability is, is you know, a key agenda for everybody at the moment. And I think it's, it's, it's just right as well. I think when it drives efficiency into your work processes and, you know, reduces waste and this type of activity, it's, it's, only going to ever have you know a positive on our industry if you could you know you've obviously done a hell of a lot of work here a lot of change and you mentioned earlier you know you learned a little bit by making those mistakes which is which is great being brave you know <laughs> getting out there and and just sucking it up and being brave on it but if you could do something differently you know what what would that be uh you know uh, it was probably Graham. It was probably eight, maybe seven or eight years ago. We really um, started to hone in the focus of our people development to a people-first company, mm. and realizing that you know more and more it was actually you know we we were focused on customers, it's customers first, but it's actually our people first. You know, and if we take care, good care of our people that they'll take good care of the customers. So um, we've been in business now for 17 years. So, so that's one thing, if I could do it over again, start that process earlier in the game, along with leadership development and servant leadership, because leading in this world is completely different than a traditional body shop. 
you know, I grew up in a traditional uh, body shop and um, I grew up as a um, an early young production manager. And back then, your job as a production manager was to put out every fire that, that was burning. Right. And the best of the best production managers, of which I thought I was the very best, right, can put out any fire, right? There wasn't a situation that would come up that you couldn't resolve, and that's what it is. And you did it day and night, and it was, you know, six days a week and 12 hours a day, and you stacked up paperwork, and, you know, it's just everything was very, very reactive, uh, if you will. And it was almost like um, dictative management, right? So, you know, you, you saw situations that were happening on the shop floor and you barked out orders of how to correct them. And that, that's how it went. And this is a whole different ballgame. The servant leadership that um, really helps our process go means that as a leader, whether it be at, you know, at the site level, at store level, uh, whether it be at the corporate level, whatever, my, my job becomes to help others be successful in what they do. And so the whole focus is around what can I do to help facilitate their development, their careers, mm-hmm. uh, their role. And they're uh, uh, within the company. And how can how can I become really a servant to that cause? And uh, we are we're getting better and better at that. But like I said, if I had to do it all over again, uh, we'd have started that right back when we started the company. And as far as formally developing that, sure. Hey, you took me right back there, <laughs> fighting fires and <laughs> yep. ever changing demands and ever changing pressure and. Yeah, it it's uh, I think we all experience this, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there is a need for body shops to change. You know, around the world, we we were chatting earlier that you know that actually we always hear this sort of every market's different. Everybody has their own view on their own market, their own shop, you know, their own local. That I think sometimes people feel in isolation. It's it's only the pain they're only experiencing on a very local level. But we all know that actually, it's same sort of issues everywhere around the world. Yeah, and and you know we see this as a global organisation. We see this in lots of different markets, you know, the need for doing things differently, for adapting, for taking on technology and understanding where it's going in the future. What what would your you know, we have body shops that listen to this this podcast. If you could give some some words of wisdom or share some experience, you you know, what what would you say to to shops out there that, that, you know, are sat there today and they're facing this this huge challenge and and they know they need to move forward but they don't know where to start sometimes what would your advice be yeah that's a great point graham you know because we're in an interesting time in the industry where um we definitely whether it was pandemic related or otherwise we definitely lost some of our capacity as an industry and what we're experiencing in, in the u.s is that if you're a certified shop if you are focused on uh, really uh, all the technology uh, that is needed to fix cars properly. If you're forward uh, thinking in that manner, you're booked out months, months upon months. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword there because what that also does is that helps to um, prolong, if you will, the traditional model um, that, you know, if you're, a commission-based model and you've got a lot of work there, you can attract technicians uh, that are going to eat up those uh, hours. 
at the same time, knowing that um, the concern over liability and how much oversight we can put on those repair uh, repairs of each individual technician becomes a challenge there. So you know that there's a change that needs to happen, although it's almost like I'm afraid to make the change because I don't want to upset what's going on right now because our capacity is so much in demand uh, right now that if I upset this thing, I'm going to turn it upside down and then I've got to rebuild and uh, in the perfectly worst time uh, in the industry. And so um, a couple things that I would say is that if you haven't started down to change the way that you approach things, the number one number one place to start, and it's a very easy uh, example, or, or it's very easy exercise, if you will, is start in, whether you call it repair planning or blueprinting, and start in that preparation stage up front. And a great exercise is simply, you know, have a pizza lunch or a, a, a lunch with your technicians uh, with a whiteboard and say, okay, if we only had one chance, to diagnose this vehicle. Only one chance. What would we have to do to ensure that we nailed it? And you start listing that stuff out. And, and you write down to things like color match. If you have only one shot for color match, number one, that's got to be part of the upfront process. And there's got to be a set of standards by which you make a determination of what variance you're putting on the vehicle and where you're putting it. So everything right down to that level of detail. And leadership can keep really challenging the team to come up with more and more. And I promise you, if you did that every, with every body shop across the globe, that list is going to look very similar. There may be subtle differences, but that list is going to look very, very, very similar. So if you start there and you do a great job of preparation, you inherently you inherently become more lean, for uh, lack of better terms, because you're removing a bunch of redundancies that are a result of a process up front that maybe didn't capture it all. Like the, like I grew up with the preliminary estimate, right? Write a preliminary quick parking lot estimate, get those parts ordered, right? Well, the only thing that really did is made you feel a little bit better and made the customer feel a little bit better on the update call. But it actually didn't ha- it actually didn't do a thing to shorten the repair time. It actually lengthened the repair time. So um, if we really get after that first per- that first step, that first step, and say, hey, how do we nail it? How do we create our own set of standards of how we approach every vehicle up front? You're going to improve dramatically. And then you start thinking. This takes a, again a, a bit of courage. Think, start thinking outside the box. Okay, how am I going to field a sustainable workforce? in the future when it's so difficult to track people. And some of the things that we've done, and this may be a, a more of a radical approach, but tooling our facilities so there's no tool investment, you know, uh, moving everybody off of a commission base so that the more experienced and more versed technicians are more um, welcoming of the, um, the, more welcoming of the uh, uh, apprentice-like or the entry-level people coming in. So um, first and foremost, it's nailing up front. I don't care what kind of process you're running. That's going to benefit everybody. It's going to serve everybody better. That is that is really, really, I mean, that is great advice. Honestly, this is fantastic. And, you know, look, I mean, Michael, we've discussed quite a lot there. And, and I think, you know, we, we've got a short time, relatively short time on this podcast. But yep. I, can, I can tell you now, I think we could talk for hours, yeah, about, about this. And, 
<laughs> your experience is, is tremendous it really is but but you know i think for the moment that brings us to to an end on a great note yeah i mean that is a fantastic piece of advice for shops out there and and I, th- I really do think, you know, many are just paralyzed. And I think that whole thing around, you know, they're so worried about changing the model in case they fundamentally, you know, break the whole process that and it is about just being brave and accepting that things change, you know, and things move forward. So, look, Michael, I'd really, you know, I really want to thank you very much for sharing all these views and knowledge with us. You've certainly been on a journey. Yeah, you're certainly a lifer. As some of us are, which is fantastic, and it's great to speak to you about this, you know. And it's, it's, I think as body shops face more pressure on profitability, on sustainability, everywhere in the world, you know, not just our local markets, but everywhere in the world, and we all share the same sort of level of pain. I think it's quite clear from the discussion that there's good opportunities to do things differently. And I, I think like you've really identified, you know, getting your guys involved in that process, you know, and, and actually helping, you know, take their knowledge and their experience and give them that leadership and and move for, forward, you know, make the changes. So, look, again, thank you very much for your, you know, your experiences, for taking part and taking the time out in this uh, for this air podcast. Um, a belated happy Independence Day, by the way. Thank you, know, you. Co- co- coming from a Brit. That's that's not too bad yet. So yeah. I hope you celebrated yesterday and took some time out at least. So we did. We did. Good, good, good. Hey, and to to the audience out there, if you're interested in finding out more about DCR Systems, you can do by visiting dcrsystems.com. For Axel Nobel, please follow our organization through, you know, the usual social media platforms and you can find us online. We hope you enjoy these sort of air podcasts. And, and if you miss the previous episodes, you can find these on Spotify and YouTube. Just search for Automotive Insights Refinish. And for the moment, you know, again, I'd really like to thank Michael. I, I, I feel like we can we can put together a number of episodes just chatting like this. So we might you yeah, might be yeah. back soon, Michael. We're just scratching the surface, right? It's a it's a great time uh, to be in the industry because if you want to get out, at least in the U.S., it's easy to get out right now. But if you want to be in, there's no better time if you could think different. Uh-huh.